you open your Bibles, please, to the letter of 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy there is in your New Testament after 1 and 2 Thessalonians. When I came to Pine Grove, I was ordained in a denomination, and I am in the middle of transferring my ordination to a, another denomination, and one of the questions that this new group asked me was, you know, what hobby, horses, theologically, do you end up preaching and teaching and talking most about? And at first I thought they asked, what hobbies do you do? And so I started talking about maple syrup. That wasn't what they were asking. They are asking if there is a biblical truth that you see your church needs more than others, what do you end up talking about? And it's this series, I answered, the, the church, talking about the, who the church is, our commitment to each other. And, and so I asked myself this week, why? Why is this so heavy on me? Why does this pop up? Why this series? Mandy, my wife, even said, like, this is something I preach on a lot, indicating maybe too much. Uh, and so what my answer to my own question is, I think if there is a weakness I've seen, I, I've been in the pastorate for nearly 20 years, and if there is an area biblically where the church is weakest, it's an understanding who the church is and who her leaders are, what they're to do, and the relationship between the sheep and the shepherds. We just view the church as take it or leave it. Uh, we don't care for her as we are. Now, of course, that's a general indictment. That isn't always true. But I think there is. We, we give our hearts to many other things, organizations, even Christian ones, and not the church. And then I see in the church in America... Pastor Mark mentioned last week that there are three marks of a true church. There are three realities that if they're present, that is an indication to you this is a good, healthy church. Those are just the right preaching to the conscience of the people. Not just the doctrines right, but that it's aimed at your hearts. It's aimed at your sin. It's aimed at knowing you. That's number one. Number two is that we practice baptism in the Lord's Supper by faith, rightly. And then third, the third mark is, in my opinion, I mean, those two are in short supply, but the third one, which I want to get at today as we talk about what the church is, is just about absent. It's that the pastors and elders and the people have no expectation of any kind of personal, intimate involvement in your lives, especially by way of any kind of correction for you. And so that third mark is, often called discipline. Now, by discipline, I don't mean where we publicly call somebody out for their sin and kick them out of the church. I mean the regular, private, ongoing, knowing your lives and caring enough for you that when we see something amiss, we say something to you in private. I've been reading a book on evangelism. Uh, I forget the title of it. Uh, yeah, I forget the title. Anyways, in it, I thought I put it in my notes, I didn't. In it, he relates an experience he had as a pastor, in his first pastorate. 
he had a young woman leave his church and go to another church. And he asked her why, and she was all too glad to tell him. And what she said is, in going to this other church, as they've gotten to know me, they've corrected me. You never would. You were just nice. And, and so I want to go to a place where the pastors and elders love me enough to know me and correct me. And it's that part that's missing. Now, some of you may be new here or newer, and you may already be thinking, what the heck kind of place is this? We're coming after you. That's what kind of place this is. Oh, it's a loving place. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that we've had those who, fathers who corrected us and we respected them for it. I've told the story of my third grade teacher, Mrs. Babcock. She was the best. And one of the reasons she was the best is she had very high standards for our behavior. And we respected her and loved her for it. It's the same thing with pastors and elders. Now, this sermon is in the middle of a series of seven sermons on who the church is and what we're supposed to do. And if you remember, in week one, we defined the church as, Acts 20.28, we're purchased by the blood of Jesus, so we're his church, even Pine Grove. We're precious. And in the second sermon then, what, are, what is this blood-bought church for? What's our purpose? On Ephesians 4, we see that our purpose is to work together with each other that we could help each other become more like Jesus. This is the Great Commission. Make disciples. We're supposed to be involved in each other's lives using what God has given each of us to help each other become more Christ-like, particularly more loving. So those are the first two sermons kind of setting the stage of who are we and what are we for. So how do we accomplish that? What tools, means has God given us as a blood-bought people to accomplish this great calling to help each other get to heaven, becoming more like Jesus? Well, last week, Pastor Mark showed us the main tool is preaching. The Word of God, both in the preaching and in the celebrating of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So good work, brothers and sisters. You attend these things. And Mark was right to exhort us to not just be here, but to be here. To not just come here and let the words pass through your ears, but to soak in them. Think about them. Be careful to pay attention. That's, that is the primary means God has given you to become more like Christ. But that's not the only one. This one has to be combined with that one. You'll need the preaching of God's word to your conscience combined with the care of your shepherds overseeing your soul loving you enough to risk offending you by telling you where we see you're wrong and encouraging you when you're right. Remember David? Remember his sons? How did his sons turn out? How did his children turn out? Bad. Do you remember what it was noted, why they turned out bad? Because David would not displease his sons by telling them no. By saying, why do you do thus and such? Thus and so, I think it is. Maybe that's the King James Version. 
So good fathers are willing to displease their children. Good shepherds lead the sheep with a rod and a staff. That's what I want to talk about this morning. And I want to do it by looking overall generally at 1 Timothy. And what I want to do is I want to read a few texts here. And I want you to be listening for not precisely what the content of what Paul tells Timothy to do, but kind of taking a step back from that and just looking at the urge, what, what Paul is urging Timothy to do. Uh, that'll make more sense in a moment. So I'm going to read a few sections. First Timothy 1, I'm going to start in verse 3 to 11. Then we'll flip over and read out a, a sec- or all of chapter 2, and we'll look at other places, but that'll give you a, a flavor for what I'm talking about this morning. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge, take note of that, certain persons. This is personal, intimate shepherding. Not the entire church. Go to certain persons and charge them. Not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. All right, so that's one thing. Turn over to chapter 2. <clears throat> All right, let's uh, look at, we'll begin at verse 8 through the end. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and golds or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Flip over to chapter 5. I'm going to read a section there also. Verse 1, chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, Younger women as sisters in all purity. And look at verse 7. Command these things as well, so that no one may be without reproach. Go down to verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversaries no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. All right, let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. We have sworn an oath in Christ to keep your righteous rules. And so, God, help us now. Teach us your rules. 
Help us to love them, incline our hearts to them for your glory, for they are our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. First Timothy, if you're not aware, is, is unique. It's close like Second Timothy and Titus in that this is a personal letter, not to an entire church, although Paul does intend it for the churches, but to another pastor, to an elder. And in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, we read that he wrote it so that you may know how to behave in the household of God. So this is something of a elder manual for care for the sheep. How to pastor, how to elder. And so when we read this letter, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, and these three letters are commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles. Letters to instruct pastors how to pastor. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They're manuals from Christ by the Holy Spirit to the church, to her shepherds on how to shepherd. So, thanks to engineers, everything you buy comes with a manual. And some of you save them. And they're given to you. You have this quick start guide on how to get the thing going right away. And then you have the full manual. Frequently asked questions, troubleshooting, hopefully everything you need. And those are to help you to know how to run the thing. Well, how are, how are elders and pastors supposed to do this? Well, these letters are that kind of manual. So what I want to do is, overall, look at this letter and ask you to ask of this letter, what generally... Is Paul telling this pastor, this elder, what kind of ministry he's supposed to be doing for the people of his church? Again, our purpose as a church is to work with each other that we might become more like Christ. Ephesians 4, pastors and elders are given you to teach you, to equip you for that work. And last week we said that the preaching, the teaching, celebration of baptism and Lord's Supper is front line. That's number one. But that has to be combined with personal, intimate involvement in the sheep's life where we encourage, where we rebuke, and where we correct. Pa- personal pastoring. Sometimes we as elders talk about it as proactive pastoring. That is, there are times in your life where things are so askew that you can't help but come and ask for help. You know what I mean? Your marriage is very difficult to the point where you can't fix it anymore and you come and ask for our help. And we want to be responsive in those reactive kind of shepherding situations. Or maybe you have a great sorrow in your life. And you need help bearing up under it. And you come to one of us and ask us for help. And we're reacting there. Proactive shepherding is we give you help before you ask for it. I am a basketball official. And one of the, in our, before the game, there's three officials. We have a pregame meeting where we review what we want to make sure we do. 
And one of the things we tell each other is, don't forget what you permit, you promote. If you permit the coach to say, that's terrible, and don't tee him up, you're promoting it. If you see it and you hear it and you permit it, you've condoned it. Parents get this. You only get more of what you permit. Because <laughs> your kids think you're condoning it. It's the same thing true in the church. Shepherds are supposed to see and say something. We are to know you with a level of intimacy that we can tell when there, we can see what we need to see and say something. And that's what this letter is saying. Think of it like coaching. Coaches often have meetings with the entire team where they talk about things that the entire team needs to hear. That's kind of like preaching. The whole team is gathered. You're all hearing the same thing. Some of this is aimed at specific instances that we've dealt with throughout the week and think it's probably times 10 in the church, so we're going to hit that. But this is for everybody. But then the coach will often take a player aside and say, hey, you're not boxing out. All the other four are, you're not. You got to get your rear into your guy. So you personalize something. That's the part of shepherding I'm talking about. And I think if there is something we as elders and pastors need to improve on, it's that. So let's look, though, at elders first generally. First Timothy is a very helpful book at considering who elders are generally. So elders are shepherds. In 1 Peter 5, we are to shepherd the flock of God. And in Hebrews 13, we are overseers, shepherds of your souls who will give an account to God. And of course, we aren't Christ. We're Christ under shepherds. And if we ask, what qualifies a man to be a shepherd. What would you say? What qualifies somebody to be a shepherd? Anybody? Say it again. Huh? Godly. Great. Let's look at it. First Timothy 3. The main qualification isn't talent, but character, godliness. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So getting yourself ready, aspiring to be a shepherd is a good, godly aspiration. And then the general qualification is given right away. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That is, if he is charged with something, his life is of the kind of godliness where it won't stick. Not because he's got people who will defend him even if he's wrong, but because he's not wrong. He's godly. All the rest of this, qualifications that follow, are just unpacking that above reproach. Character qualifies the man. Character. He needs to be godly. And so, you can apply this to every area of your life where you have any influence over others. Any leadership. Father, mother, husband. At work. The main thing people need to see is that you're a good person. That you're godly. That you don't lie that you work hard, 
you're not greedy, that you're not all about you. And so as we consider the overarching task of the church is to become more like Christ, those men in the church who are giving themselves to that most diligently and in growth are those called eventually by the church to shepherd the church. Why? Because you want somebody who's further along helping you along in that same direction, right? Do you understand? The, the entirety of the purpose of this is to become better Christians, more holy. And it won't do any good to have somebody leading you who's less holy than you, who isn't repentant over his or her sins. And if you're a younger woman, struggling with younger women things, you don't go to an older woman who's not fighting the fight and got some victory, do you? You go to somebody that you think has got some scars because they've won a bit. And so what qualifies men to be elders are, first, their character. Second, in 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul urges Timothy not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. In 2 Timothy 1.6, you don't have to turn there, Paul did this. He laid hands and so ordained Timothy to the ministry of pastor or elder. And so part of the calling of a, an elder is that the church needs to ordain that man to the work. They have to lay hands on him. So in our form of government in the U.S., we require those who govern us to have our consent to govern us. Our wise forefathers of our nation saw that in order to govern a people well, you need the consent of the people. We do that through voting, but we also do that through letting them know. Same in the church. You have to have a stake in your leaders. You have to recognize these men of sufficient godliness, that you trust them, that you consent to being led by them. This is what it's, it's getting at in 522. Don't be hasty in ordaining men to this work. This is part of the qualifications of an elder. Don't, don't ordain a man who's a recent convert. Don't be hasty. He may show great talent. He may show great godliness, but give him five or ten years. So they have to be of high character. They have to be consented to by the church, ordained for the work. And third, they have to be men. In other words, they can't be women. In 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man, rather that she is to remain quiet. Verse 13, for Adam was born first and then Eve. Now, be careful, brothers and sisters. Don't shrug that off. Don't. Our world hates that. And the place where the church needs to be strongest is the place where it's going to get most pressure from the culture. And there's no greater place that they think you all are a bunch of hicks than in not letting women be elders and pastors. Why won't we allow women to be elders and pastors here? Because God said it. That's it. 
And you can do all of the interpretive dancing around this verse that you want and make it say what it plainly, make it not say what it plainly does say. So women, you're never to be an elder or a pastor. And you should avoid those churches that do that. You should especially avoid those churches that do that, have women as pastors and elders, but refuse to call them pastors and elders because they know they shouldn't, so they lie about what they call them. So look at their website, and often you'll see men of elders, and then you'll have women pictures right there with the men, and they'll call them liaisons to the elders. (laughs) Why? Because we hate God's word. Because we're so much smarter than God. You know what I'm fighting myself to do right now? I'm fighting myself not to assure you that I'm not that mean and that I don't hate women. But too bad. So, men must have godly character must be ordained by the church, must be men, and there should be more than one elder. It's not explicit here in it, but throughout the Bible, in Titus, he's to point elders in every church. Why can't the church have one pastor or one elder? What's that? Yeah, because one man is bad. Because we're sinful. Because God didn't give you angels as shepherds. And the other shepherds need to often tell one shepherd, uh-uh. <laughs> and so we have good elders because they have said to me many times, uh-uh, that's not a good idea. And uh, vice versa. Okay, summarizing, elders are godly men called and ordained by Christ, and then the church, men, and several of them. So what are elders to do? All right, I'm going to give you a visual. You remember in the book of Nehemiah, remember they're rebuilding the wall, and they had enemies without and enemies within. They had those who were trying to stop the work from outside coming in, and they had people from within who were against the work. And do you remember when the workers were working, they held something in one hand and something in the other? Remember? A sword and a trowel. A sword in case the enemies were that close, they couldn't even have it sheathed. They had to have it in their hand. And then a trowel, a sword to fight off the attackers and a trowel to build. A trowel to construct. One instrument of warfare, one instrument of building. That's what an elder does. An elder needs a sword, and an elder needs a trowel. And they need both in love. They need to use both because they love the sheep. Maybe one of the best passages in all the Bible about shepherding is John 10. Christ is the good shepherd. Why? Because he loves the sheep and lays down his life 
And then those who will shepherd Christ's flock need to not be hirelings. A hireling is a hired man who, who just does it for the income. And when trouble comes, what does a hireling do? They get behind the sheep. They run. But a good shepherd won't. Why? He's got a sword and a trowel. He wants to build up the sheep while fending off attackers. And what I want to do is look at these texts that we just read briefly and show you what this work looks like in your life. All right, so go back to chapter 1, verse 3. I urge you, when I came to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So he's supposed to be pastoring the church at Ephesus with the elders so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Okay, sword, right? He's got to use a sword. When unbiblical doctrine is happening, he's supposed to stop it. Why? So he can use the trowel and build up the church in right doctrine. Now he's supposed to go to those people and refute them. Tell them to knock it off. And the doctrine that he's dealing with, if you look down in verses 8, 9, and 10, is that they don't understand how the law functions. This is a huge problem in the church today. But he's supposed to go to the individuals. The sword in one hand, the trawl in the other, and defend the sheep and build them up. So that's one. Now, now let's look at chapter 2. He's supposed to pastor men and women. Verse 8, men should be praying and not fighting and quarreling. You know, men like to argue about stuff, doctrinal. They like, they like to get into the weeds. If you don't know, men love doctrinally deep sermons. One of the reasons a lot of men don't like going to church is because the sermons are all fluffy. They're a romance novel. And men will watch romance at Christmas on Lifetime, because they love their wife once, and then they don't watch it the rest of the year. If they're a real man. My boys like those movies. <laughs> I'm just joking about that part, okay? But men want doctrine. So one of the temptations I have is just to debate and argue and not do anything. And he's saying, no, don't charge the men of the church. Pray. Don't. Don't lift fists in anger. Lift hands in prayer. Then he's supposed to go to the women and say, hey, women, dress modestly. In fact, clothe yourselves in good works. Eh, tell the women to be quiet. <laughs> good luck. Tell them that they shouldn't exercise authority over men. Okay? That's what Timothy is called, the shepherds are called to do. He's supposed to protect men from the areas that they'll have faults in and build them up and tell them to do the things that they should be doing. And he's supposed to protect women from the temptations they have prone to their femininity, to usurp men's authority, to be talking incessantly, and to charge them to do what they should according to their sex. 
So a pastor is supposed to pastor you according to your sex, knowing that that affects things. And that you, part of growing up in godliness is to grow up as a man as a man and a woman as a woman. We don't have a gender-neutral godliness. It's the gender-specific God. It's an engendered godliness. Men and women will do it differently, and that's great. should pastor them according to that. Again, go to chapter 5. Now it's not only sex, it's age. A pastor, I'm 46. There's men in here who are much older than me, and I have to rebuke them. I have to rebuke men who are older than me. How should I do that? Should I do it like I do somebody my own age? Oh, I should do it as I do it to a father. It's a lot of respect and care and honor. How about a younger man? How should I rebuke him? Should I rebuke him like I would a father? No, I should rebuke him like I would a guy in the locker room. Knock it off. I did that to somebody in the, yeah. I'm your pastor. I'm telling you to do it. That's why. (laughs) How about older women? How should I rebuke an older woman? Like a mother. How about a younger woman? Really carefully because of the temptation to sexual immorality in all purity. Don't be behind closed doors with her. Don't be alone with her especially in this Me Too age. See? Pastor, not only according to sex, but according to age, intimately, in their lives. And then you get into this really difficult teaching in the, in the middle of chapter 5 of widows. Widows who need help. You're supposed to charge family members with the widows to take care of their mom. And you're not allowed to put a widow on the care list of the church if she's below a certain age or if she's lived ungodly. She's not to receive the help of the church. Again, elders at the end of the chapter. You're supposed to defend elders in verse 19 from false accusations. Don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless there's witnesses. Because you all know, if you're in leadership, you're going to be accused of something. And sometimes people just accuse you because you're in leadership and they're jealous and don't like you. Probably because you rebuke them. But if there is sin and they persist in it, rebuke them in front of everybody. So summarizing... Keeping in mind our illustration of a sword and a trowel. Keeping in mind this, how do we grow up in Christ? We need the preaching last week. We need the public ministry of the word. And now we need the private, intimate, sex and age specific, season of life specific, temptation specific to your life kind of work in our lives. This is what the entire letter does. Care for this person like that. Care for this group like that. Get into the sheep's lives. How many of you 
Well, I won't do that. So let me just ask it this way. You remember the first movie, Top Gun? After Goose is dead, sorry if you don't understand this, he's a naval aviator, a pilot, a fighter pilot. And his best friend had been killed by his flying, and now he's back in a battle, and he disengages from the fight. Remember that? He's afraid. He disengages. He gets out of there. And they're yelling at him, Maverick, engage! Maverick, you've got to get in the fight! So I want to ask you, as you listen to this, as you heard what Paul's writing to Timothy, is Timothy too aggressive in his sword and trowel use? Is Paul having to say, whoa, you're being too hard on them widows. Whoa, you're correcting the unbiblical doctrine of people too aggressively. Whoa, Timothy, you're being hard on men. Or is he having to say, Timothy, get in the fight. Timothy, charge certain persons. Timothy, deal with the widow problem. Timothy, get women in the right place. Get men in the right place. Timothy, get in there. Is he having to restrain him or is he having to woe him? Get going, boy. Which one? It's the second. All right. We are hyper aware in our culture of abuse of authority. Rightly so. Abuse of authority is wrong. Being heavy-handed, lording it over people is wrong. But the far greater failure is not using shepherding care and authority privately. That's a far greater danger to the church. Yes, you can legalistically, manipulatively control people's lives. That is a danger. Some of you have grown up in churches like that, and that's terrible. But far more of you have grown up in churches where you've never had a pastor and elder do anything in your life at all. They refuse to use the God-given swords and trowels. Why do they do that? Why won't we do it? Why, if we see you not disciplining your child, will we not say something? Why, if we see a couple obviously at odds, not say something? Why, if you see a young woman dressed immodestly, won't you say something? Why, if we see a young man just living for the world, won't we say something? Why? Because we are afraid. This is my greatest temptation to pastor. I am not typically afraid to say something in the pulpit, but I am often reluctant to say something in private conversation. I'm pretty willing if you ask me and invite me into your life, I'll tell it to you straight. But if I just see it and it's in the moment and I've got to say something, I too often don't. Why? Because I'm afraid. Because I don't want to offend you and I don't want to make you mad and I don't want you to leave the church and I don't want you to say how bad Pastor Jeremy is. Because I'd care much more that we have this implicit deal that I'll leave you alone if you'll stay here. That's what we do as elders all the time. It's constant. 
That's the deal we make with you. Just stay here. Keep quiet. Just keep coming here. Keep giving. And we'll leave you alone unless it gets really hairy. Or unless there's people in the church who don't like the direction you're going and we care more about their power struggle than yours and we'll go after you. That's what churches do. That's what pastors do. That's what elders do. Am I saying it wrong, elders? Don't you face that temptation? Yeah. So, why do we do this? I'm closing now. Look at the end of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 11. This is the closing exhortation to this pastor in this manual on pastoring, especially personal pastoring. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteous godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight, sword, trowel. Fight. Get in there, Timothy. Smell like the sheep, Timothy. Get dirty. Take why? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession, the presence of many lives. Eternal life hangs in the balance. Get in there. Your eternal life, their eternal life. Fight. Why? Because of heaven and hell. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life. It's eternal life there. Who gives eternal life to all things and of Christ Jesus. Who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Eternal life is the reason why. Take hold of the eternal life. I charge you before the presence of God who gives eternal life to keep the commandment until Christ, who is eternal life, appears. Because we're not playing here. You have immortal souls. And you and I will trade that for anything. That's our temptation. But there, one of my favorite songs by Grey Havens, Far Kingdom. There is a far kingdom a ways from here. Beyond the storm and the sea, there will be no need of darkness and none for tears when that far kingdom is sea. There, there's a river we will know, ever clear, ever full, from the fount that overflows in the light of the king. And when we drink it, we will find that this joy ever full will ever rise and it will rise on in the kingdom. We need to pastor you like this. We need to get better at pastoring you like this. Because there is a far kingdom. And there's many dangers along the way. And you and I will be constantly tempted to take the wide, the easy. Right? And so pray for us, please. Accept us, love us. We're not angels. God was pleased to not give you angels, John Calvin says. Why? So your hope would remain in Christ and never be in a man. And yet Christ has given you these men to care for your souls until the far kingdom comes. Right? And young men, we need you to get ready for this work. 
because Terry's getting old. Right. And so is there a better work, young men, for you to prepare yourself for than to shepherd the souls of Christ's people? Take your life seriously. It matters. Let's pray. Father, help us. We can talk all this stuff all the time, but we need to do it. And so keep us from just being vain talkers preaching these kind of sermons, talking about doing it, but being unwilling to do it. Forgive us for our cowardice. Forgive us for our lack of love for your sheep. Forgive us for fearing what the consequences will be more than fearing hell, fearing your wrath, fearing these precious sheep being lost. And so help us as shepherds to love them and help them to love us and be willing to accept our loving involvement in their lives, even in rebuke and correction. Help us to do it tenderly for your glory, for their good, not for our own little kingdom purposes, but for yours, for yours, oh God. Help us have faith to see what you've called us to here in First Timothy, that it's obvious and plain and that it's right. And so God, please help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church comes uh, from... Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17. Remember your leaders, those who speak, those who spoke and speak to you the word of life. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desire to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that you may be restored, that I may be restored to you this honor. Anyways, pray for us is the main thing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week in the Lord and I love you.